Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for, well, let's say everything from Saturday, September 2nd through Monday, uh, Tuesday, sorry, September 5th, 2023. Uh, first of all, thanks for indulging me as I uh, took the weekend off. It was badly needed. Uh, I'm going to do my best to cover just about everything that we missed, uh, at least the highlights or lowlights, as the case may be. Uh, so I'm going to try to be brief and maybe a little quick. Uh, but uh, we'll we'll do what we can, and uh, please just stick with me. Bear with me here. Uh, let's get into it. There's a few anniversaries, actually, uh, a number of interesting ones uh, over the last few days. On September 2nd, in the year 31 BCE or thereabouts, this was the anniversary of the Battle of Actium, a naval battle in which the forces loyal to Octavian, uh, the heir of Julius Caesar, defeated uh, the naval forces of Mark Antony and Cleopatra to all but secure Octavian's control over the Roman Republic, which would soon, of course, uh, become the Roman Empire. On September 2nd, 1192, the Treaty of Jaffa ended the Third Crusade. That's the one with Richard the Lionheart and Saladin. Uh, if you've heard of the Crusades, that's probably the one you've heard of. Um, and uh, it was, of course, unsuccessful. Richard won several battles against Saladin, but uh, was unable in the end to besiege Jerusalem. Jerusalem because he simply lacked the manpower. Uh, anyway, there's a piece on this at the, the site if you want to uh, go check that out. Uh, on September 3rd in the year 863, this was the anniversary of uh, a battle called the Battle of Lalakaon, uh, which uh, involved a Byzantine army defeating an Arab raiding party. Um, it was uh, not a huge battle, but it set off a, an extended period uh, of Byzantine resurgence uh, at the Arabs' expense. Uh, this is the period of the so-called Macedonian dynasty, uh, which uh, really restored in, in many ways the uh, Byzantine Empire's fortunes after the uh, low point of the 7th century when it lost so much territory. So this is really the start of a, an imperial uh, upturn, so that makes the battle somewhat significant. Uh, on September 3rd, 1260, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Ein Jalut, a very important battle that uh, in which the Mongols, the onrushing Mongols, were dealt their first real serious defeat by the Mamluks, the slave dynasty that had only just uh, a few years earlier taken control of Egypt. Uh, from Saladin's dynasty, actually, the Ayyubid dynasty, uh, the Mongols obviously had been wildly successful in their rampage throughout what we know as the Middle East. They uh, destroyed Baghdad. Uh, it was rebuilt, but they conquered uh, Iran, Iraq. Uh, they had worked their way well into Syria by this point, uh, but they tried to do battle with essentially a skeleton army at Ein Jalut, which is in uh, Palestine, southern Levant, uh, and wound up running into a Mamluk army that knew how they fought because the Mamluks were from Central Asia uh, and outmanned them and won the battle. And that effectively stopped the Mongol advance and saved Egypt. It arguably saved Islam in some respects uh, because the Mongols were not at this point necessarily uh, ready to practice Islam. Many of them did convert later on. Uh, but very important battle, really one of the crucial battles, I think, in history in that it stopped the Mongol advance. 
Uh, on September 4th, 476, uh, Odoacer and his army deposed the Western Roman Emperor Romulus Augustulus or Romulus Augustus uh, at Ravenna. Uh, this is, of course, the conventional date that's given for the final fall of the Roman Empire in the Western Mediterranean. Modern historians tend to treat it as more uh, one of many milestones in the collapse of the Western Empire rather than the drop dead literally date for the empire, but it's still a fairly significant event. Uh, on September 4th, 1912, uh, this marks the end of the Albanian revolt of 1912, one of many Albanian revolts against Ottoman rule. Uh, this one established Albanian autonomy. Uh, it only lasted uh, for a very short period of time before the first Balkan War uh, resulted in Albania gaining full independence in November 1912. So it was a very short-lived outcome. Uh, and on no, on September 5th, 1905, the Russo-Japanese War ended with the signing of the Treaty of Portsmouth, which was negotiated by Teddy Roosevelt. He won the 1906 Nobel Peace Prize as a result. Uh, the Russians were obliged to evacuate Manchuria, acknowledge Korea as within Japan's sphere of influence, and turn over a couple of Pacific islands to Tokyo. The war, of course, marked Japan as a rising power and contributed to really uh, huge amounts of political discontent in Russia uh, that would not be resolved until 1917. All right. On to the news. In the Middle East, in Syria, clashes between Syrian Democratic Forces fighters and Turkish-backed rebels in northeastern Syria's Hasaka province left at least 23 people dead over the weekend, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. Uh, in the observatory's telling, Syrian National Army fighters tried to enter the Tel Tamar region, sparking the violence. Uh, the SNA may have been attempting to take advantage of the SDF's continued infighting, as that group's Kurdish-dominated corps is still battling associated Arab militia fighters in Derizor province. The SDF declared Tuesday that it's intending to end that conflict, which has killed over and possibly well over 50 people so far within the next 24 hours. It sounds like it's intending to do that militarily rather than via negotiated settlement, which will presumably involve additional casualties. The SDF and the Derizor Military Council announced an official settlement to their grievances last week in the removal of former council commander Ahmed Al-Habil or Abu Khawla, whose arrest last weekend is what sparked the fighting. But the violence has continued and there are indications it's escalating into to a broader fight between the SDF and Arab tribes in the region over deeper issues that aren't really about the arrest of a single militia commander. The U.S. government, which is seeing the tenuous architecture supporting its occupation of eastern Syria collapse before its eyes, sent a delegation to the area on Sunday to try to calm things down. There is nothing uh, to indicate that it had any effect. In Iraq, intercommunal violence in the city of Kirkuk killed at least four people and left at least 15 more injured over the weekend. Non-Kurdish groups in the city protested the impending handover of a building from the Iraqi government to the Kurdistan regional government's ruling Kurdistan Democratic Party. The structure in question originally belonged to the KDP, but Iraqi federal security forces seized control of it during a KRG-Iraqi government dispute back in 2017. Its restoration to KDP control seems to have become a flashpoint for Arabs and Turkmens who aren't terribly happy living under the KRG. Uh, Kurds in the city counter-protested and things spiraled from there. All four of those killed were Kurds. The Iraqi Supreme Court issued an injunction temporarily halting the handover on Sunday, and Iraqi security forces have now deployed to the city. 
Uh, in Israel, Palestine, Israeli security forces killed one Palestinian man and wounded another during another raid in Tulkarm's Nur Shams refugee camp in the northern West Bank on Tuesday. The Israelis turned up in the camp with bull- bulldozers and other heavy equipment looking to uh, destroy it, apparently, or at least heavily damaged parts of it. Uh, Nur Shams has been targeted in several Israeli raids this year. Uh, and Papua New Guinea formally opened its Jerusalem embassy on Tuesday. Uh, it becomes the fifth country, the other four being Guatemala, Honduras, Kosovo, and the U.S., to place an embassy in the disputed city. In Bahrain, the Israeli government opened an embassy in Manama on Monday uh, with Foreign Minister Eli Cohen in attendance. Israel and Bahrain normalized relations in 2020 as part of the Abraham Accords project. In Saudi Arabia, the Saudi government announced on Tuesday that it's extending its unilateral one million barrel per day cut in oil production through at least the end of 2023. The Saudis first instituted that cut in July, and it seems to be having the desired effect on global oil prices, which have risen from $70 or so per barrel to around $90 per barrel at last check. The production cut is affecting Saudi oil revenue, though it's hard to know how much as the price increase has has at least partly offset the lower volume. The Saudis are risking the possibility that as global, i.e. Chinese, demand rises, which it's expected to do later this year, they'll have a harder time maintaining market share. On a related note, the Russian government announced that it's continuing its 300,000 barrel per day oil export cut through the end of the year as well. In Iran, the Saudi and Iranian governments exchanged ambassadors on Tuesday, putting what seems like it should be the final touch on their diplomatic rapprochement. The two countries severed ties in 2016, but have been repairing them in recent months, culminating with a Chinese-mediated normalization agreement back in March. Uh, And the International Atomic Energy Agency has produced a new quarterly report on Iran's nuclear program that apparently laments a lack of progress toward restoring IAEA surveillance devices to a number of sensitive Iranian sites. Iranian officials promised earlier this year to put those devices back in place after removing them last year amid the ongoing dispute over the essentially defunct Iran nuclear deal, but apparently they haven't followed through. The report is not entirely negative. The Iranians have apparently reduced their overall stockpile of enriched uranium, though it's still many times over the limit imposed under the deal. Uh, And they have increased their supply of highly enriched uh, to 60% uranium, but only uh, by around 7 kilograms from the previous IAEA report. uh, And that can probably be viewed as a small concession by the Iranians. On to Asia. In Pakistan, two Pakistani army raids in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Friday left at least two Pakistani Taliban or TTP militants and three soldiers dead. The TTP has been more active this year after abandoning its ceasefire with the Pakistani government in the middle of 2022. Interim Pakistani Prime Minister Anwar al-Haq Kakar suggested on Monday that the militants are now using equipment that the U.S. military left behind when it withdrew from Afghanistan in 2021. He didn't offer much in the way of evidence, but while the the Afghan and Pakistani Taliban are not overtly connected, it's certainly possible that the Afghan Taliban or an element within it has been gifting and or selling U.S. gear to the Pakistani militants. In India, the Indian government is getting ready to host the 18th annual G20 summit in New Delhi on Saturday under something of a cloud. The war in Ukraine is once again likely to dominate the forum to the detriment of discussions around issues like climate change. Uh, To wit, G20 nations are burning more coal per capita than they were in 2015 at a time when they probably shouldn't be burning any coal at all, uh, and the developing world's unsustainable debt load. Uh, For that reason, Putin is planning to skip the shindig. Uh, He 
presumably doesn't want to talk about the war. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping is also not going to be there, sending Premier Li Qiang uh, in his place. It's unclear why Xi isn't attending, as he's usually a fixture at these gatherings. Uh, Is he trying to insult the Indian government? Is he looking to snub the G20? Is he just tired and wants to stay home? Your guess is as good as anybody else's. Uh, But the upshot is that any joint summit statement, assuming the gang can even agree on one, is likely to have even less import than usual, given his absence. In Myanmar, a drone strike targeting a police facility in Cayenne State on Sunday killed at least five people. A group called Federal Wings, which specializes in drone operations and is affiliated with the Anti-Hunta People's Defense Forces Militia Network, claimed responsibility for the attack. The attack appears to have been carried out in a double-tap fashion with an initial strike followed by another about one hour later that killed people who responded to the first one. In North Korea, the New York Times reported on Monday that leader Kim Jong-un will head to Russia later this month to, in part, talk to Vladimir Putin about supplying the Russian military with weapons. Kim will allegedly ask for food as well as high-tech components for satellites and submarines in return for providing more basic munitions like anti-aircraft and artillery shells to the Russians. The U.S. has been accusing North Korea of either arming or planning to arm the Russian military for months now, making charges that are routinely denied by Pyongyang. Kim has in recent weeks been stressing the need to increase North Korea's arms manufacturing capabilities, which could indicate that he's either sending weapons to Russia or intends to do so. Then again, it could be completely unrelated. U.S. officials have said their threats of unspecified punishment have thwarted potential North Korean-Russian arms deals in the past, and they're issuing similar threats now. I have to admit, I'm unsure what the U.S. could possibly do to North Korea at this point, short of military action, which isn't going to happen. There can't be much left to sanction, in other words. Uh, In Oceania and Vanuatu, the parliament of that country elected veteran politician Sato Kilman as its new prime minister on Monday after the country's Supreme Court ruled last month that a no-confidence vote ousting former PM Ismail Kalsakau was legitimate. Uh, Kilman has been PM several times over the past dozen years, give or take, and had been serving as a deputy PM under Kalsakau. Uh, on Tuesday, he announced that he would revisit a security agreement Kalsakau's government negotiated with the Australian government, which is what sparked the no-confidence move amid opposition claims that the deal undermined Vanuatu's neutrality. Given how that played out, uh, it's unlikely uh, the parliament would vote to ratify the deal anyway. In Africa and Sudan, at least 25 civilians were reportedly killed in multiple incidents in Khartoum over the weekend. According to a neighborhood committee, an airstrike in the southern part of the city late Saturday killed at least 20 people. Shelling on Sunday killed at least five more people. An airstrike strongly suggests the Sudanese military was responsible, though the Rapid Support Forces group does have drones, so it can't be ruled out. Both sides have artillery, so Sunday's shelling is harder to attribute. Uh, In Guinea, protests marking the two-year anniversary of that country's 2021 military coup resulted in the deaths of at least two people in Conakry on Tuesday, and there are credible but unconfirmed reports of at least one additional death. The two confirmed deceased were both shots. The obvious conclusion is that they were killed by Guinean security forces, but as far as I know, there's been no official statement to that effect. Uh, In Mali, security forces reportedly thwarted an attempted militant attack in uh, western Mali's Kulikoro region on Sunday. At least three of them were wounded in the incident, and at least one of the attackers may have been killed. 
in Burkina Faso, an apparent jihadist attack in that country's north region on Monday left at least 17 Burkina-based soldiers and 36 members of the volunteer, Volunteers for the Defense of the Homeland Paramilitary Force dead on Monday. The security forces were in Yatenga province, reportedly to oversee the resettlement of a town whose residents had been driven out by jihadist violence a couple of years ago. Over the weekend, an attack in the Plateau Central region killed at least one police officer and four VDP fighters. In Niger, the French media outlet Le Monde is reporting that Paris is in negotiations with the Nigerian military about the withdrawal of French forces from that country. Notably, French officials are not interacting with members of Niger's junta, whose authority they refuse to acknowledge, but rather with military officers not directly linked to July's coup. Nevertheless, the junta, backed by thousands of supporters, has been demanding a French withdrawal. These talks are still in the very early stages, so there's little by way of detail. Uh, on Monday, the junta reopened Niger's airspace to commercial flights for the second time since the coup. Junta leaders immediately closed the country's airspace when they took power, then opened it a few days later. They then closed it again a few days after that in response to a threatened invasion from the economic community of West African states. Niger's airspace remains closed to military flights. In Nigeria, an apparent bandit attack struck mosques in two communities in northwestern Nigeria's Kaduna state on Friday evening, killing at least seven people in total. Uh, at least in the initial strike, the primary target appears to have been a local militia leader. In Eritrea, Amnesty International has released a new report alleging Eritrean human rights abuses during the 2020-2022 war between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, in which Eritrea participated on the Ethiopian side. These accusations are not new, but this report, based on interviews with dozens of people in northern Tigray, details the extent of the atrocities, uh, the alleged, I guess, atrocities, including extrajudicial executions and sexual violence, including, and I'm quoting here, sexual enslavement. Eritrean officials continue to deny these claims. Uh, in Gabon, Gabonese coup leader Brice Oligin Gwema and Gema, excuse, excuse me, uh, officially took office as interim head of state on Monday to apparently celebratory crowds on the streets of Libreville. Oligi made a number of promises in his inaugural address, including the adoption of a new constitution, political reforms, economic development, and, quote, free, transparent, credible, and peaceful elections uh, at some yet-to-be-determined date. On Tuesday, he met with Central African Republic President Faustine Archange Tuadera, uh, who's been appointed as the Economic Community of Central African States Gabon Envoy, uh, and op opposition leader Albert Ondo Osa, uh, who officially lost, uh, officially, I guess you could put in quotes, uh, last month's presidential election to the now deposed Ali Bongo Ondimba. There's no indication of any substantive developments emerging from either session. Uh, in Europe, in Russia, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met with Vladimir Putin in Sochi on Monday to try to convince his Russian pal to rejoin the defunct Black Sea Grain Initiative. He appears to have failed. Putin insists he'd be happy to rejoin the accord, provided that Western governments guarantee sanctions pr protection for Russian food exports. For Putin, that means, among other things, restoring the Russian agricultural bank's access to the SWIFT financial network, which is apparently a non-starter for the U.S. The two men also discussed a stopgap plan by which Russia will sell 1 million tons of discounted grain to Turkey in a deal financed by Qatar, uh, and Turkey will ship that grain free of charge to six food-dependent African countries. 
It's not a sufficient replacement for Ukrainian grain on the global market, but for those six countries, at least, it should be a substantial boon. Uh, and the British government is reportedly going to designate the Wagner Group as a terrorist organization. Uh, this seems a little bit like closing the barn door after the horse escaped, led a mutiny in Russia, and then had the Russian president blow up its private jet in an act of retribution. But it would let authorities seize any Wagner assets uh, that may possibly uh, be in uh, the UK, uh, if there are any. As for Wagner's assets in Russia and thereabouts, the Wall Street Journal reports that the Russian government and friendly private military firms are moving to gobble those up. This includes Wagner's experienced fighters from the Ukraine war, as well as its personnel stationed overseas in support of the organization's various international projects. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Kremlin is using those private firms more or less as cutouts to avoid any bad blood that Wagner personnel might feel toward the Russian government. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky has canned his defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, intending to replace him with state property fund director Rustem Umerov. Uh, Zelensky didn't offer any specific reason for this move, saying instead that the Ukrainian military, quote, needs new approaches and other formats of interaction with both the military and society at large, end quote. Reznikov had been defense minister for almost two years, most of that time at war, and may have welcomed his removal on some level. But he's also overseen a ministry that's been mired in scandal, and I suspect his removal will not be particularly mourned in Western capitals. Uh, and while I don't think you can draw a direct connection between Reznikov's ouster and the slow progress of Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive, it's probably safe to assume that if Ukrainian soldiers were already celebrating in downtown Melitopol, that he would still be on the job. Uh, in the Americas, in Brazil, deforestation in the Amazon, in Brazil's Amazon at least, uh, declined by more than 66% year over year in August, according to Environment, Environment Minister Marina Silva. That's about the same as July's decrease and comes at a time of year when deforestation is usually at its heaviest. Obviously, the baseline is skewed here since Brazil's president last year was Jair Bolsonaro, who would clear-cut forest land on general principle if he could, but it still indicates that efforts to reverse his destructive policies are having a sustained effect. In Peru, a group of Shining Path militants reportedly attacked an army unit in southern Peru's uh, Ayacucho department, Ayacucho department excuse me, early Monday morning, killing at least four soldiers. Two of the attackers were also killed. The incident took place in Peru's notorious Vrayam region, V-R-A-E-M region. It's a geographic region that is the epicenter of the country's cocaine trade and arguably Shining Path's last real sanctuary within Peru. In Colombia, a battle between National Liberation Army, or ELN, rebels and Central General Staff, EMC, fighters uh, in eastern Colombia's Arauca department on Monday left at least nine people dead. Department officials have not identified the dead, so it's unclear how many were combatants versus civilians. The EMC is one of the largest factions of dissident ex-revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, or FARC, fighters, and occasionally vies with the ELN over territory or other issues. The Colombian government is currently in a ceasefire with the ELN and is negotiating a potential ceasefire with the EMC, but those ceasefires only cover conflict between those groups and government security forces, not conflict between the groups. Uh, and finally, in the United States, Spencer Ackerman at The Nation argues that U.S. foreign policy is pursuing what he calls an extinction agenda. 
I will read you a couple of paragraphs of this piece. Uh, in April 2022, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued the sort of warning that would galvanize a sane society into historic action. Unless greenhouse gas emissions cease, cease rising by 2025, the IPCC found humanity will not be able to limit the warming of the planet to 1.5 degrees Celsius, the temperature at which the worst ravages of climate change might still be avoided, not all of them, just the most catastrophic. The choice implied by the IPCC was between a globe-spanning initiative to have emissions by 2030, thereby giving us a chance of remaining within the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, or a 21st century defined by an increasingly uninhabitable world. Drastic as that choice is, the IPCC made clear that a path out of civilizational disaster is doable. Uh, the emissions reductions necessary to stay within a 1.5 degree Celsius rise would, quote, shave 1 to 2 percent, end quote, off the projected global growth of GDP through 2050, according to a summary from Damian Carrington, the environment editor at The Guardian. But the IPCC's ultimate point was that the timeline is unforgiving. Some 30 months, Carrington wrote, before the future promises to be unlivable for an unthinkable proportion of humanity. 17 months have passed since the IPCC's warning. Summer 2023 featured both the hottest July ever recorded and an understandable focus on wet bulb temperatures, which helps measure the point at which external heat and humidity overwhelm the body's ability to cool itself and survive extended exposure. Lahaina, Hawaii, once a paradise, lies in ruins from the worst U.S. wildfire in over a century, with at least 115 people dead as of this writing. As horrific as the blackened ruins of Maui are, it's a prologue of what nature has in store for our communities if nothing changes. Yet U.S. foreign policy thinking operates as if none of this is happening, or rather, as if U.S. foreign policy has better things to do than mitigate the, the advance of global devastation. At a moment when the imperatives of survival demand unprecedented global cooperation for decarbonization, the question preoccupying U.S. foreign policy elites is over how many cold wars to, ra to wage. Uh, the, uh, this is me again. The Biden administration insists that it can pursue those Cold Wars without affecting its ability to work collaboratively with its rivals when it comes to climate change. Needless to say, to date, there is at best minimal evidence to support that insistence. And on that note, uh, thanks for sticking with me through. Uh, I know it was a long one tonight. Uh, thanks for that. And thanks for uh, letting me take a little bit of break over the weekend. Uh, as always, thanks for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers, especially paid foreign exchange subscribers, I wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you're not a paid foreign exchange subscriber, uh, I do hope you consider becoming one at some point to help this newsletter survive. Uh, and until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.